Welcome to episode number 16 of the Zach Kuhn Show. Here we go. This is another live episode. This was recorded during an industry webinar, so there's no safety net here. I mean, anything could be said, anything could happen. I mean, well, now it's not live, but it was live. I mean, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of edge. Wait till you hear it. This is about data. And if you're looking to, I don't know, take up a new skill during quarantine, or maybe you're looking to expand on your data knowledge, this is your episode. I mean, this is, you're gonna get a lot out of this, guaranteed. Okay, I'm done talking. I, I mean, I think this pretty much speaks for itself. We've got some badass data experts on this and they're gonna absolutely crush it for you. So let's dive in. Should we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you so much for everyone who's here. My name is Zach. If you're tuning in and you don't know who I am, I run a newsletter called the Nashville Briefing. And this is the second live event that we've done. We host a podcast, but live is so much more fun. So I'm so excited that everyone's here and thanks for tuning in. Really quickly, in my screen, I've got I've got Alex White and then Brittany Foreman and Jason Hoven. I figure if we can just go down the line and maybe just give a little bit of context, a little bit of background, where where you work now, what your current position is, and how you fit in to the current ecosystem at whatever job you're you're doing. All right. Should I? Alex first is first on virtual my line. Screen. All right. Let's it's hard to it. read cues virtually. So hi everyone. Um, Zach, thanks for organizing this. Really excited um, to be talking with Brittany, Jason, and all of you about data in the music industry. I started a company called Next Big Sound and we launched in 2009, tracking the online music data of every band in the world and then selling a subscription dashboard to artist managers, labels, and the music industry at large. Next Big Sound was acquired by Pandora in 2015 on July 1st, so five years ago last week. And um, I now run um, other teams within Pandora. Pandora itself was acquired by SiriusXM, so I'm the head of curation programming um, at Pandora and SiriusXM. I report um, into Alex Luke and Scott Greenstein, um, chief content officer of Sirius. And my team is all the genre experts, head of pop, rock, Latin, country, classical, jazz, blues, et cetera, at Pandora, um, making decisions um, about what to place where and, and the kind of human side of algorithmic programming. Awesome. Br Brittany, I've got you next. Perfect. Um, hi, everybody who's tuned in. My name is Brittany Foreman. I have been working in music probably about 15 to 20 years. We'll like leave it nebulous. Um, so I've always worked closely with creators and like and no using data to kind of move forward. Um, about five years ago, I really jumped into data at a company called Next Big Sound. So me and I <laughs> know each other. Um, and from there, I kind of uh, got the bug of just like, great, we can use data to solve bigger problems than just where should we tour next? And I've kind of been built using building blocks and I've moved to Next Big Sound to Song Trust and Downtown where I was uh, head of data and head of data strategy there. And currently as of February, it's almost been about five months, I am senior data analytics manager at a company called Tempo. So we're very new, we're very small, but we're very scrappy, much like the cast of Hamilton. Um, very <laughs> scrappy and hungry. Um, and so I will kind of like pause there and I'm really excited to be part of this panel. Can you also give a little context into what Tempo does? Because I think some people might not be aware. So we are a music investment firm. So essentially we provide liquidity to creators. Um, we buy catalogs 
uh, generally, if you um, have royalty streams or copyrights that you'd like to put up for sale or auction, uh, we definitely are interested and we'd, love, and we'd like to partner with creators to make sure um, going forward that we can kind of build a really good partnership uh, because the music industry is small and it's all built on trust. And so like we're really, really committed to making sure that we do right by our creators and the catalogs that we buy. Awesome. Okay, Jason, last but not least, kick us off. Yeah, thanks for having us, Zach. Uh, hey, everybody, my name is Jason. I am the content and insights manager at Chartmetric. Chartmetric is a music analytics platform. We're tracking over 2.2 million artists. We are, I would say, the Bruno Mars to Next Big Sounds, James Brown, I would say. They were kind of first in the space, um, you know, in the 2000s, and we're just kind of like trying to do what they did. And um, my connection to uh, the other panelists is actually really interesting. Uh, before I was uh, at Chartmetric, I was a graduate student at NYU. Alex White was one of my professors. He ran an amazing class. And uh, during that time as well, I also interned at SongTrust, which Brittany was at. And so I remember meeting her very briefly. And uh, before that, I was actually a cryptology officer in the US Navy. So a really different field, obviously, but a very similar skill set, actually. There's a lot of disparate pieces of information and you're trying to tell a story is what it came down to. And so every ever since then, I was trying to match that skill set with you know my passion, which is music. And, and here we are, so happy to be here. Awesome. Okay, so really quickly to everyone who's tuning in, at the bottom of your screen, you should see a Q&A section. And at the end of this, we'll do a Q&A and open it up. So think of questions, put them in the Q&A, and we'll get to as many as we can. So really quickly to kick things off, I want to get rid of all the haters. When I announced that I was doing this, I had a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people who were like, you know, data's great, but it's very important to make sure we don't lose that gut instinct that the music industry is based on you know, the balance of science and art, where is that balance? And to me, that's something that's really interesting because I think I'm sure, you know, you guys can, can talk more about this, that data can leave, lead to more gut instincts and more creative decisions. But I would love to know how you guys approach this when you're maybe talking with someone who's shooting down the data or who's not willing to buy in. Where do you think the balance is between data and art? Um, personally, I think data leads to more questions than like just kind of dismissing any gut feeling that you have. Um, it generally will, if you have a gut feeling, especially if you've been doing it a while, the data generally supports it. So it kind of makes, gives you a little bit more solid foundation in what you're trying to prove. Because we can all day say like, this is what I know, but until you can point to it, it's a lot harder to convince other people. Um, so essentially what we're doing a lot of is using, using data to quantify what I think as the music industry, we kind of know by heart. Um, and so I think that's really important. Um, but it, it, I mean, it, it is a balance. It is definitely, we don't want to automate people out of it because the music industry is super relational and like built on relationships, but I think it helps us to scale a lot better. One of the first things that you know, when we started Next Big Sound, people would, plenty of haters, data's so cold, you guys are ruining the music industry. It's, uh, how could you possibly boil down music, something so beautiful and, you know, the ultimate human expression into numbers. And one thing that usually started to kind of open people's minds to data who were previously horrified or offended was 
if you actually think about the individual num person behind the individual number that you're tracking, I can say, you know, 1 million streams and it's kind of overwhelming, but actually each of those streams represents, and if you zoom all the way in, here's an 18 year old girl in Wichita who is listening to this band on repeat 15 times in a row. And that's 15 of the 1 million streams. And wouldn't it be great to understand and try to see who those fans are, how they're behaving and interacting with the art and the music, which songs they're gravitating to, even if those aren't necessarily the first single or what the band or management thinks is um, the best one. And then using that to kind of tease it out. Um, I've almost had to go so far down the beating the data drum of uh, kind of over-exaggerating so that people would listen and pay attention in the early years. But I think um, focusing on people that believe in data and understand that we're trying to enhance and augment all the human things around the music industry has been my strategy. Yeah, and the only thing to really add, because I grew with both Brittany and Alex, is I had a classmate, this was in 2017, so not that long ago, who was interning for a management company. And he was copying and pasting Instagram follower accounts every day for their entire roster. And that was one of his tasks. There is no reason a human being should be doing that. Uh, there that hurts are, my heart. It, it's painful. There are things that our computers are really good at, and there are things that humans are really good at. Computers are really good at repeatable things, discrete values, crunching a bunch of variables together to come out with some insight, discovering that you, hey, oh my God, I'm a bluegrass band and I have fans in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who knew? You know, those are the things that um, computers can do really well and humans are really good at getting the vibe of an artist, understanding why they wear the things they wear and, you know, the different, you know, mix of funk and, you know, classical music that they put together and knowing how much it resonates with a certain audience in some place at some time. Like those subjective things and cultural things are good for humans. There's no reason that one has to win out over the other, in my opinion. Like to me, like the optimal mix is, is to have both. And it really just depends on how you do your business that determines that, in my opinion. We're, I think data in the music industry, hopefully now, is not a controversial topic. I think there's areas where it gets really controversial, like should you use AI and um, data to write songs, compose music, that kind of, that starts to get, today the reaction feeling that kind of 10 years ago using data to make smarter marketing and business decisions um, get so I do like having those conversations with people um, mostly because it gets really interesting of what what the what's technically possible and then how do we use that for good and not for evil oh it's a balance <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about some data things that are happening right now today, but I would love to just go back for a minute. Alex, when you started Next Big Sound, you were really one of the first data dashboards that was created. And I'm curious when you started the company, you know, if, if you were the, you know, a major label executive with all the resources in the world, what kind of data were people looking at close to 10 years ago? Yeah, well, the first um, real uh, James Brown of data in the music industry is Nielsen in 1991 that started tracking weekly totally. CD sales information. Um, Big Champagne came around in kind of 2004, mostly focused on P2P and Napster and Torrance and that sort of um, side of things. And we started really 
tracking social data and streaming data in 2008, 2009. So our first data points that we collected were MySpace, Last.fm, iLike, iMeme, and a bunch of sites that don't exist anymore. So like the first five years was mostly about adding and dropping data sources as they came around. And so, you know, in 2009, when we launched Facebook, you still, they didn't have pages like fan pages. So you could max out your personal page at 5,000 friends. So like every celebrity would have, you know, 5,000 friends and it'd be useless. And Twitter, there was still like a wiki curated list of who are all the musicians and music people on Twitter. Let's like crowdsource a list of who those people are. Um, and YouTube really hadn't become the spot for was starting to become popular, but really didn't have the volume that it did later on. And Spotify was still years from launching in the US. And so it was a wild, different time. At that time, the music industry was still much uh, over 50% of the revenue was physical units being sold. So it was mostly about correlating all of these crazy online metrics that are so overwhelming and confusing and mapping them to CD sales information. So how do we show and we could for the first time give a global major label executive a view on how mentions on twitter views to the wikipedia page of the artist and youtube views spiked in advance of release of the album and how that anticipated sales numbers and so that really kind of got industry leaders over the hump i think of hey when we see a lot of this stuff happening online and what this stuff has changed over the years of course um, it leads to better, more revenue for our business later on. So those were some of the metrics we started tracking. And I thought, honestly, that it would be that way forever, where every year you'd have new sources coming and going. And it really kind of ossified, uh, you know, uh, solidified probably in 2013, 14, where it's like, hey, these social networks aren't being dislodged by new ones coming around. These streaming services are kind of getting more and more entrenched. So I think that's been a surprising and interesting development over the years. Were, were platforms coming in much coming in and out much faster when you started the company than later on? Like, was there a moment Absolutely. in time when they were like, you know, you had Groove Shark and Rhapsody and like all these other companies that yeah. were bouncing around? Seriously, it was like every year we would add four to five sources that would be like must-haves from the music industry. You've got to start tracking Vine or Tumblr or um, any of these uh, pure volume and then ultimately it kind of well as long as you have you know these major streaming services and and these major social networks were kind of pretty good hey everyone thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the show some of you may know that i run an industry newsletter called the nashville briefing really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry and if you want to learn more about it you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe also if you're enjoying this show and specifically this episode please feel free to give us a five-star review on your podcast listening platform thanks so much now back to the show Okay, so let's go to today. So right now is such an interesting time for artists to be releasing music because you can't tour, you can't do so many of the things that we typically do. And, you know, there's early on there were a lot of talks like, is now a good time to release music? Is it not a good time to release music? And what I'm curious is if you're a new artist and you're about to release music for the first time, this is your very first release, and you have zero data other than maybe 
small social numbers, what can you be looking at? What can, what can you be searching for or finding to help your career, to guide your, your release? What data is available to you essentially when you have no data that is your data? Yeah. Um, this is going from one of my colleagues at Chartmetric, Mike Warner, but it, just to emulate similar artists. So, you know, artists who are kind of in a similar vibe as you and maybe in a similar genre, trying to emulate what they're doing in terms of the type of content they maybe put out on social media and how they best connect with their fans because they're potentially your fans as well. You know, what cities are they located in? You know, learning about some of the non-editorial playlists because likely you can reach out to maybe some of those curators and make some connections to see if they'd like your music what is always a great path. Um, and there's always... TikToks, you can make a bunch of TikToks and connect uh, to, to fans that way too and help grow a base. But yeah, I mean, I, you can always learn from the data from other artists who are just, you know, a couple sets further down the road, I think is a great way to start. Yeah, um, to piggyback on that, if, you, if you're creating music, you kind of know what your lane is and what your niche is, kind of like what your genre is. So using other people's data is a great place to start. Um, also not comparing yourself with like Beyonce, because um, that can definitely uh, demoralize you. That's good advice for like, everybody. So. That is. like I think life <laughs> advice, don't compare yourself to Beyonce because she's Beyonce. Um, but knowing kind of like what your, your tribe and your vibe is, um, if you make electronic music, like look at maybe like more indie electronic music and kind of um, emulate their success and also being mindful of the community that you've built because before you release music, you should already have like a an audience that you can mobilize. So having some engagement versus just having an audience. Like we can also see that if you like are you have an audience that nobody engages, you want people who are going to press play. Um, so being uh, very present on your socials and um, interacting with your community, and also measuring the data of like artists is very important i think it's so so hard at the beginning when you're starting from pushing that rock and it's not moving and where do you begin obviously great songwriting is the core but that's kind of why i think the data versus no data um or is a little silly where we started um and that kind of debate in the industry which is how do you actually get a spark to even begin and happen and that's where all the creativity that you put into music needs to come even yeah. as much on the business side and how do you generate buzz awareness interest or create reasons for people to check you out and get your story out there and so i think if you look at any of the bands and, and musicians that have broken over the years a lot of the times you can trace it to um, taking advantage of a new platform a new way of thinking a new medium that others are afraid and it's not kind of fully saturated if you're launching a TikTok video today you're competing with billions and billions of listeners and users whereas you know years ago um you would not be and so as each new platform kind of comes and goes and that's i think one of the shames in the solidification of these giant networks is there aren't kind of new networks rising all the time to take advantage of if you're an artist to experiment on. Um, but, you know, the first artist that experimented on Instagram, IGTV and Instagram video, first artist on Snapchat, YouTube, Vine, we can kind of 
trace back the Sean Mendezes of the world and some of these biggest, you know, pop stars to those origins. Totally. Channel. So, so trying to find those white spaces where people aren't all competing and you can stand out on a, a field might be my, the only kind of constant advice is it's always shifting and changing and try to go where it's not as saturated. To find it. Really good point. Now, I think the interesting thing about TikTok, for example, is people on TikTok can post a video that gets 2 million views and it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then it's like, well, is that amazing? Like I'm not famous yet. When people on TikTok, for example, get these massive views on a video, it feels like a massive view, but they're still not really connecting. How do you put big numbers in context, especially even though we're seeing less new platforms, when we do see a new platform like now Triller or whatever it is, how do we judge success when the number might be massive on that platform? But what, what, what does that say? How, how do we put that into context? I think about the conversion rate and the ratio. If you're just looking at those like headline vanity metrics, it's almost impossible to know what's good or bad. Kind of where does that fit percentile wise across every artist on TikTok? I always used to say a million plays ain't what it used to be. And that was as YouTube became more and more popular, a million views on YouTube used to be enormous. I probably sound like I'm hundred years old um, right now. Um, but, you know, a million streams on YouTube, even though that's very impressive start is still in the context of YouTube now overall and where it is um, not kind of what it used to be <laughs> inflation wise. So I like to think about the, um, where you fit amongst all the other artists on the platform and then ratios like how many people viewed the video versus engaged with um, the, the content in some way, left a comment, thumb up, thumb down um, with Instagram, kind of how many people are at or Twitter or Facebook are engaging with the post instead of just kind of viewing it. Cause I think what the industry's um, some mistakes in the past have been just looking at the big number of MySpace you know, friends without engagement levels or play volumes without saves. And um, I think trying to find that other ratio around engagement really tells you a lot more and prevents some of the big screw ups that have happened when you expect big numbers to translate, but are just looking at the kind of vanity top line metrics. Yeah. Anybody I mean, else want to jump in there? Jason? Yep. Yeah. I mean, from a nerdy like data science perspective, there is there's this function called um, clustering. Uh, next week sounded it uh, in terms of, and the general idea is you can take a certain data set with a bunch of different factors, you know, and maybe that's Facebook, you know, fans and Spotify followers and yada, 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 yada. And you can like let algorithms have their way of identifying certain groupings of artists. And in this context, like traction, you know, with audience or popularity levels and putting them in certain groups and then each one of those factors, whatever they may be, whatever you've kind of threw into the mix will have kind of brackets. Um, and you could do it from a mathematical perspective. If you had a bunch of artists and you had their information, you can kind of do a data science function where you can kind of cluster it. And so you can have like, okay, on Facebook, I should be aiming for this. On Twitter, I should be aiming for this. Um, so you can at least benchmark yourselves with other artists who are in a similar space just like what Brittany says, because you'll just get depressed if you try to be Beyonce from day one. Um, numbers wise, you should try to be try to be her from day one, spirit wise. But um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think that's like one way to attack it if you have that kind of mindset. Otherwise, there's always just, you know, institutional knowledge of how the apps work. You know, TikTok, I don't think anyone is going to disagree that like the stars is sometimes the artist, but most of the time it's the influencer themselves, you know, like dancing and, you know, doing whatever funny prank that they're doing or whatever the meme right, happens totally. to be at any given point. And the music's just kind of like a fun accompaniment to that um, a lot of times. So, yeah. I think both of them kind of come in handy. So going back to breaking artists and, you know, where to look, what to do, how do you look at data for your strategy? Jason, something that Chartmetric has written a little bit about is this idea of trigger cities. And this is a pretty Nashville audience, so I don't exactly picture that um, the next country star will break out Southeast Asia or wherever, which are some of the more common, where some of the more common trigger cities are. But mm. I'm curious that, you know, when you're looking to break an act, whether it's the traditional trigger cities or, you know, trying to find some secondary trigger cities or trigger cities for the genre you're in, any thoughts or any tips on how to go about that or how to think about that idea? And then maybe if you want to give a little context into trigger cities, if, if people aren't fully aware about what they are. Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's an idea that uh, our chief commercial officer, uh, Jazz Jenkins, um, came up with kind of during his career as like international marketer. So it's just the idea that, you know, when you hit upload to a song now, it's instantly globally available, which is a dynamic that is new to the streaming space. Obviously, to everyone who's on the line now, this is uh, an obvious fact. But I mean, before when it was still CDs and vinyl and cassette tapes on shelves, like there was, it was very much limited by national geography and sometimes even regional. So you know, at least in, in the Western world, we're so used to New York and Paris and London and LA, you know, being these like epicenters of culture and music. And like, these are the bars to, to um, or these are the areas in which to, you know, excel in. But when you look at Jakarta and Rio de Janeiro and Lima and a lot of cities and other parts of the world that a lot of times have better access to cheaper data on their smartphones and they have like magnitudes uh, more people you know young people who are just loving streaming music you start to rethink wait a minute i can actually get more exposure in some of these cities because ad spend is cheaper you know whether it be on a social media platform or on youtube or what have you and possibly get more bang for my buck and that might you know up my stream count, you know, on these some of these platforms. Oh wait, by the way, there's algorithms that pick up on that kind of stuff. That might actually trigger, you know, some, you know, playlisting on people in the quote unquote, you know, as the IFPI at least records, you know, higher revenue countries when it comes to recorded music. So it's like this trickle down or trickle up, whatever you want to call it, effect of I should be looking at the entire globe, not just what the traditional music industry has been looking at. And so that's what the whole like, concept of trigger cities is. And I've lost myself. What was, what was the question? <laughs> How can, especially, you know, with, with something like country music where you're probably, you know, you're probably not gonna break in Southeast Asia, most likely, yeah. you know, how can we be looking at other cities to market and, you know, promote and, and bring artists to um, maybe outside of the places that we traditionally bring them to essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we wrote like we have a blog and we have a podcast on our blog we have like this three-part series where we wrote about this concept and i think what we tried to do was we focused on two regions uh one was southeast asia as you mentioned and one was latin america 
obviously two huge regions um, and in their own right, but you found like really interesting patterns um, on several levels. So like, for example, on the platform level, we found that Spotify was very much the place where these regions would go to for a lot of like Western fare, a lot of like English content. Whereas Instagram was like hyper localized, like usually like the top 100 artists or what have you were very like local, you know, like if it were talking about like Quezon City, which is the city I'm Filipino. So I, it's hilarious that I think Quezon City is now like in, in label marketing departments everywhere because it pops up so much on Spotify, but um, and a lot of other streaming platforms, um, you know, a lot of like local Filipino like singers, actors, that kind of stuff. So that's from like from the platform level. You also kind of learn a lot of their genre tastes as well. Um, like really kind of fun, hard on the sleeve, like Jeremy Zucker type of pop plays really well in, in Southeast Asia for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, rock, really big in Latin America. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting to see how these regions for whatever reason kind of gravitate towards certain genres more than others. Not to say that if you're not that you can't succeed, but there's a lot of kind of cultural implications I think that are in, come into play here. And so I think Trigger City is just a way to help take a harder look at that and try to see maybe I fit into this place or this slot, you know, better than what I would have wanted to or expected to as opposed to other regions. And as let's say a country act, we're just, you know, stereotypically you would think that country act is probably going to break in America. Now, you know, Europe is starting to kind of get into the country game, but you know, is it worth looking at some of these other cities? Like, could we be surprised what, what will we find or, or because of the cultural differences and we're singing in English, is it gonna be hard to break into some of these other places or is it still worth looking under the hood? I totally think it's worth looking under the hood. I mean, every artist, you know, if you are a country artist, if you're a rap artist, what have you, you're gonna have a range of, um, of genres, right? Within your own repertoire. So if you have like a more, and a classical rock kind of sound, maybe maybe it's worth buying a few can Instagram campaigns in, you know, in Brazil or in Chile or in, um, you know, Uruguay or whatever. Um, and maybe if you do have a couple more kind of poppy kind of, you know, hits, you know, maybe I could give a shot and running a few YouTube campaigns in Southeast Asia. Some of, some contracts have taken it like really a lot further, like Kane Brown, for example, he collaborated with um, Becky G, I think, uh, on a song, maybe I think this is like 2018, 2019. Um, a very, you know, very like hard play towards like trying to have some like cross, cross audience, you know, I don't know what you call it. Uh, just trying to like, you know, basically cross over like their, their fans and see if how much would stick. So I think there's a couple ways to go about it, but um, it really just depends, I guess, what your goals are and how, how fast you want to do it. That's where I think the experimentation, even if you're a smaller artist, are there other artists you can collaborate with outside the kind of normal straight lace scene that might help cross pollinate those fan bases together. There's one story that always sticks with me with on the brand marketing side, they use Columbus, Ohio as a test market often because it's isolated from all the other media markets. So it's not polluted by any of the bigger cities around it. They can pump a bunch of ads into that one location and then measure if more people walk through the door and buy the Burger King item that they're selling or introducing or the Denny's or whatever it might be. Um, this is an example where the music industry is different than um, CPG or 
quick service restaurants and you can't isolate it that way. But I do think that kind of trying to find exposure in lots of different ways, big and small, measuring on a weekly basis, how those exposure points are generating um, engagement and then kind of focusing on those areas where you are seeing those sparks, whether it's geographic or demographic or on certain platforms. So Brittany, you're working in the catalog space and you're working with publishing and recording music and you're constantly looking at information as to what's valuable or how do we assess this catalog? Is, is this catalog, you know, worth getting involved with? And I'm curious from, I'm curious, first of all, what kind of things you look at to that gets you excited about a catalog. And then I'm curious, you know, for a publishing company or a label that's going to invest in a catalog or an artist or basically require, you know, acquire their own assets, what kind of things can they be looking at early on in artist's career to assess the long-term value of whatever they're going to acquire? Um, that is a great question. And my boss is watching, so I can't give away the entire secret sauce. Um, but um, essentially, as an investment firm, you want something that will essentially be a good investment over time. So you want to essentially uh, be able to see, to predict how well this is going to perform in the future um, and use a lot. So it's a lot of data science because you're using historical data points to essentially um, try to predict how it will perform in the future and use a lot of other outside data to probably look at like, okay, what do we feel is reasonable? Um, but in terms of like what excites me or what excites anybody on our team, it varies um, because we all have different experiences. But I think it's just being able, like how we said that there's data and then there's the gut, like you wanna connect with good music. And I think anytime that that comes across our desk, like we can, if it's something we can connect with, we're just like, okay, let's like dig into this and see like what, what uh, like kick the tires a little bit and see what we can shake out. Um, I, I find it fascinating all the data points and kind of like being able to realize more than just kind of like what's on their statement sheet. Like, okay, so what can we take like from the outside world and um, trying to like move that forward? So there, there are certain types of artists and now it's kind of interesting time, time because we're not on the road, but sometimes you'll find these artists that have big streaming numbers and then they'll go out on the road and they can't sell a ticket or the tickets they sell don't reflect the amount of streams that they have. What are some things that maybe give that away or that you could tap into and maybe in a broader sense, what are some ways to maybe go, okay, we're really, we've got a ton of data in streaming or, or streaming taking off for us. So let's maybe focus on engaging people on Instagram or, or TikTok or w whatever it is. What are some ways that you guys look at the broad picture and kind of assess what the, what the actual, you know, super fandom is, if you can even value that with a number? Like Mr. White says, a million streams isn't what it used to be. Um, totally. And I think with the, uh, the advent of like stream farms, which is something that's completely new, um, being able to see, okay, well, this person got a viral uh, listing on a playlist but how many followers do they have? Like how many people are actually engaged with, so if they have seven followers, but a million streams, like something's definitely not matching up there. You're just kind of like, uh, okay, let's like, let's go to the next uh, social platform and see like what their Twitter followers are like versus 
just is like how many people are engaged and if you start noticing a trend you're like uh this seems like they're like really great at that uh, data science and they have like a marketing budget but maybe this is a flag or it definitely is a flag so those there's kind of like a cross-pollination against across different platforms being able to see like if you see a flag you can definitely check the other platforms be like oh we've got like three red flags like flag on the play like we like don't go any further um but it goes back to like audience versus engagement like you can have a huge audience but like it, are people engaged and if people aren't engaged it's probably uh a telltale sign that probably people aren't going to buy a ticket and people aren't going to uh buy a record whenever or anything that's available because uh, most likely those people aren't real fans. So, oh, you were, were you gonna say something, Jason? No, I was, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, just, just a quick follow on that. I also think a lot of it is dependent on how digitally engaged a fan base is too, in terms of at least if you want to try to like predict, you know, how much would ticket sales be or what kind of venue should we try to book or that kind of thing. Like, I feel like a lot of it is not just how loyal a fan base is, but also is their engagement online even something I can even measure? Because there are certain bands or genres where like they're just not online as much as, you know, the BTS army, like who is like the other side of the spectrum of, of digitally engaged. There are just fan bases that are, will buy a ticket every time a band comes through town, but they're just, they're not really following them on whatever platform. So there's kind of limitations, I think, depending on how, how involved uh, your fan base is online, which is something to take into consideration, that, I think. That was one of the hardest parts with Next Big Sound. We created five different categories for artists, undiscovered, promising, established, mainstream, and epic. Right. And uh, the hardest part was all of these edge cases where these would be incredibly epic artists with zero, you know, low to um, non-existent streaming numbers. Think like um, legendary big band leaders and yeah um or jam bands um are a good example famous jazz musicians classical composers and orchestras we couldn't call them undiscovered just because their um listener base is still listening you know via cds or radio or <clears throat> however they're they're listening um so i think it goes the other way too like jason was saying where you can sell a lot of tickets and not have much online activity and so Brittany's point about comparing multiple different sources has been a problem in the music industry forever everyone's trying to game to appear on whatever chart or sales category or whatever it might be and when we first started laying out time series data you could see these ridiculous spikes in myspace plays or soundcloud followers or whatever the metric du jour happened to be. And so looking at it over time and seeing, <clears throat> did you really add an average of 10 plays a day for two years and then two and a half million on one day and then back to 10 plays the next day? And um, at one point we created a list of artists that were likely to be, or their teams that were likely to be gaming the system online. We decided never to release it because it wasn't the right message, but I was hoping that by threatening this list, um, <laughs> in an interview I did that um, people would stop that bad behavior and they didn't. But um, <laughs> I think for artists and musicians watching, obviously building an organic fan base, the hard long way, like everything in life, like the shortcut of getting added to a massive playlist 
is great for a minute and then you fall right back down and and if you're not built on a stable foundation um it's really hard to sustain totally so let's say you're an indie artist it's you it's maybe you and a manager and or you know you and a manager and somebody else and for example if you go on chart metric it can sometimes be like overwhelming to know like where to click what to do how like i see all this information how do i make use of it so I'm curious, like, you know, early on in your career, you don't have a big team, it's you and a manager. What kind of things on Chartmetrics specifically or, or any other platform can you be looking at and be, you know, making career decisions about a release? I think maybe release is most relevant because nobody's on the road at the moment. But for releasing new music, what kind of things can you be looking at and, and you know, putting to use? Yeah, uh, it's definitely something I feel like we've been struggling with because in the beginning when we started in like 2017, it was like, let's add more stuff. And now it's like, we've got so much stuff. Um, it's, 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 it is overwhelming. And it's, it's starting to, you know, become no different than, you know, having like 20 different tabs open on your browser, trying to track all your different um, data. So I think one way to start, and this is, you know, irrelevant of whether it's Chartmetric or Next Sound or any other one of the amazing tools out there is, Again, if you're starting out looking at artists that maybe are a little bit further down the road and looking at their data and the cities that they're resonating in. And then, you know, once you kind of go through that process and give it some time, there are other cooler things that you can engage in uh, to get back into Chartmetric. We have this one feature called Neighboring Artists where you can look at, you know, one of your artists on your roster, if you're a manager or you yourself as an artist, and it can look at other artists that are in the space that are in a similar place as you in terms of like your so sonics, cool. like your genre. Thanks. And, but at the same time, you can kind of sort by um, those artists, that subset of kind of artists that sound like you musically, but also have a similar amount of um, Instagram followers or TikTok likes or Twitter followers, what have you. And so then there becomes like a, a meeting place of like your vibe and also kind of like where you're at traction wise as an audience. And so from there, you can kind of like, cool, maybe I can reach out to, the, to their team and, you know, see if we can write a song together or, you know, do a cool live stream together on Zoom or whatever. You know, we really feel like the tool or any tool is really just a way to free up your creativity. So, you know, let the computers handle all the the really backbreaking work of like looking through like thousands of rows of data that no one wants to do. So you can save some time so you can, you know, write a song and, you know, reach out to similar minded artists. I think that's really the whole point of all this. At least that's the way we see it. I think, I mean, most people get into the music industry because they love music, not because they love data other than the panelists here and a uh, hundred plus people in the chat room um, who I applaud for hanging out with a bunch of data nerds on a Tuesday night. Um, I think about, uh, this is not my concept, the Dilbert cartoonist uh, was the first I heard to talk about the talent stack. So if you are similar to getting into the music industry, if you're a musician and a manager, you know, there are thousands of singer songwriters in Nashville trying to make it. Um, if you can add different layers to your talent stack, Quarantine is a perfect time to do this. If you know how to speak Spanish, if you're an expert in data, if you're good at search engine optimization, if you are a graphic designer, if you like to make write poetry, 
how do you layer on those stacks and start to differentiate yourself from the thousands of other singer songwriters or people in the, who want to go into the music industry and I talk to students all day who want to be in the music business and and data is one of many ways you can kind of differentiate yourself from a thousand applicants for the uh, opening at Sony Music. So now if you want to learn data and you're like holy crap like I've never you know taken a data science course or I don't know anything like like any resources, any places to go, books to read, things to look at. Like if you have no idea where to start or you have a little bit of a sense to start to add those, those levels, any tips on how to dive in for someone who works in the music industry? <laughs> um, as that person who's done that, like from music to data, um, I think there's a, this idea that data is just this binaries of like zeros and ones and data is really just any sort of recorded information. Like I tell people I work in information and gossip is information. Um, <laughs> but I think if you have the discipline to do an online class, there's a lot of resources that way. I am not one of those learners. I always buy the course and never do it. So I did general assembly. But there's also ways you can, there's a wealth of information online. Um, there's lots of different affinity groups, like Twitter has a bunch of lists where there um, are engineers who like, I want to learn this, or I'm working on this. And you can kind of put it out into the ether. And somebody's like, oh, great. Like, I'd really love to see it. And people are very generous with their time. Um, but I, I don't want people to get overwhelmed thinking that data is this big huge mont like goliath thing where you can just take it day by like very little bit at a time like we think about data and we kind of do algorithms in our head like that's all the like all of our gut decisions are algorithms that we've pre-recorded in our head so essentially it's just kind of thinking at things like that and building relationships and like starting small and kind of building off of that um Brittany is a perfect case study in kind of using tools available in courses. And it really just starts with curiosity from questions to other data scientists on the next big sound team to enrolling in courses and looking online for what type of learner and environment you are and you wanna do. And there's tons of options available and you don't have to start with, um, you know, there's advanced stats courses and lots of scary intimidating things. And it can start as simple with Data Camp is one online resource, and, and there's lots of free tutorials on Python, um, which would be a great starting place for anyone. I will shamelessly plug the blog and podcast that we have. <laughs> uh, Love the blog and podcast. Go <laughs> <laughs> on. Now that Brittany and Alex have, have said some really cool things, uh, I mean, it's essentially what we try to do. Um, so I mean, that's why I bring it up is, we, we do come across a lot of folks who are interested in, in music analytics, but they're like, yo, this is, I went into music to avoid all this stuff. Can you please tell me how this is uh, useful to me? That's what we try to do is try to kind of close that gap between the data nerdy stuff and kind of what you want to do in the music industry. Cause we talk to lots of different people in, in different sectors, whether it be the branding space, the live space, artists themselves, that kind of stuff. And just, we talk about data and we talk about how they use it. Um, we just had a really cool podcast with Will Page, who used to be the, uh, the chief economist for Spotify. And he's, he does it from a really crazy, you know, 30,000 foot level, where, as opposed to someone else who um, just is, he's a rapper and he, he just uses it every day because that's, that's kind of, he has an analytical mind. So 
I think um, trying to find those kinds of folks who are kind of open to talk about it um, through whether, and it's not just our blog, I'm sure there are a lot of other websites um, that can talk about it um, is a good way to kind of get there too, in my opinion. Yeah, we looked at hiring a traditional marketing team and department and realized that what we really needed was people to tell stories from the data that we tracked. And I think we created the world's first music data journalist as a job um, telling, weaving narrative around all the data that we track. And it's been so cool seeing Jason kind of spread his wings and take it to a whole different level with chart metric and all the stuff they've been able to do with wildly bigger and different data sets than we had at Next Big Sound. Um, but I think that's a lot of the gateway um, for folks who are scared or intimidated is reading a story about how a small artist or manager used data to grow their career and be able to make music for a living. Okay, I want to be sure we have time to answer the Q&As. And if, if anyone's watching, there should be a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and feel free to send us a question. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, sincere question is what this person writes. At a time when data privacy is a tremendous concern to people all over the world, why, um, why, why has music data been regarded as public domain, which resulted in um, countless abuse of, oh, that's a little intense, but I'm curious about data. I'll take it, um, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, Alex, take yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thanks for the question, Michelle. The, uh, this is one of the big things when we started tracking MySpace, and other sources online was how do we get this data from the bands and actually if you um no one cares but next big sound started as a streaming music site where anyone could create their own fantasy record label and sign the bands they thought were going to become popular to their own fantasy label and we track how early on you signed those bands so if you're the first person to sign luke combs and he went on to be signed 10 million times you get points based on how many people signed the band after you did Anyway, that was a long-winded way of trying to get this activity to happen so that we could mine all the data and understand how music was spreading throughout the ecosystem. We realized it'd be way easier to just actually start with where people were already interacting with music online, and that was MySpace. So we had lots of lawyers look over lots of documentation, and the fact that Fallout Boy had 300,000 plays on MySpace on July 15th of 2009 was a fact and facts are not copyrightable. All we were tracking was the time series data over time. We were not pulling in lyrics or music or artwork or anything um, of that nature and tried to steer clear there. I think uh, the industry has gone towards a place where if you authenticate in with Facebook, Spotify, any of these platforms, Pandora, um, you can get a lot deeper information, but something like lyrics or artwork or um, the music itself certainly is illegal to rip off other sites. And so the analytics platforms are licensing data from these platforms that they're allowed to collect through the terms of conditions they're uploading. And then if they're playing by the rules, just capturing the kind of time series data that's more fact-based and not the art itself. Totally. Okay, great question here. From the standpoint of each panelist, what is the single most important data point or metric that you believe is useful in predicting what song will be a hit before it actually becomes one? Is it save, shares, adding to a personal playlist, general streaming data, et cetera? <laughs> so this has changed 
over time. So we have a patented algorithm at Next Big Sound, which you can sub in different success criteria of what's the likelihood that a band will <clears throat> hit some criteria because we now have, you know, almost 10 years of data going back. And this was the whole point. We, the first summer we wanted Lady Gaga was the number one artist in the world. And we were like, what if we could go back in time and see who the very first people, sites and things that were talking about Lady Gaga and map that flow over time? And wouldn't that be valuable and useful to the industry for similar artists to follow that trajectory and understand how music becomes popular? Um, at one point, views to an artist's Wikipedia page improved the accuracy with which we could forecast CD sales information by uh, a large degree. And that was something we used uh, with the major labels around um, how to forecast first week album sales, first year sales, et cetera, to inform marketing spend and all that sort of stuff. Um, but again, all the sources change over time, so it constantly adapts. And one of the most surprisingly difficult things was defining what success means in the music industry. And I sat down with every label head and manager and I encourage others to do that. What does success actually mean to you? And I got as many answers as the number of people I talked to. Um, depends on how much money is inputted, depends on the goals of the artist, depends on all sorts of um, different things that are hard to model into an artist, once they cross this threshold is successful, a million streams. Okay, well, not that successful anymore. 10 million, 20 million, and it changes over time. Uh, that is a very hard to pick a very single point, but I think in terms of thinking of data, um, if they're over-indexing in relation to their cohort, so like a million streams isn't big for a mid-level artist, but if it's your debut and you haven't had any records out and you do a million streams in the first week and it's all authentic like that is successful that kind of is a artist that's burning bright and kind of moving a lot faster than a lot of the people that are kind of in their niche and or in their uh subgroup of like this size this genre if they're performing a lot better in relation to everybody else it kind of is a signal that they are probably going to move to the next stage and be a little bit more successful than probably if they kind of just were at uh, even kill, were able to keep in step with the rest of the group. Yeah, I don't okay. really have much to add to that. I, I agree with both. <laughs> I think they pretty much covered them both. By the way, if, if people watching have never played around with the next big sound, um, where, you, where you type in an artist and you can see like where they stand or, or how, what, what status they have, it, it's quite a fun exercise to go out and try to do. Um, this, this is a great question right here. I run a label and I've got a song that I've got a gut feeling is starting to resonate. There's been some big unsolicited influencer posts. We were written up in the New York Times, played on morning shows um, multiple times, etc. The numbers aren't amazing right now, but we are growing and the Shazam numbers are very disappointing. I have an intuition we're on the brink of hitting it with the song. How can we figure out exactly what's going on here? What advice do you have to, for us to act on and push it forward? Shazam numbers are very disproportional. So I think that's a cool exactly to hone in on what are those sparks and stories. And this works uh, or is kind of what is happening at labels big and small, which is where do you find those sparks? How do you capture it and tell that story? And then how do you share that with all the right people? So obviously you're not trying to um, book artists into live performances, but now maybe, you know, sync licensing is 
huge as everyone's streaming all the time. Is there a way that you can use those Shazam numbers to talk with agencies um, about placing that song as a for instance? And I think this is where that creativity meets data, which is use the data to tell the story and then trying to um, find other avenues where that um, exposure can happen. Awesome, okay. Got time for maybe one or two more questions. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Question for Jason really quickly. What's the name of your blog slash podcast? Where can we find it? Oh, sweet. Okay, now I don't feel bad about putting it in the chat. I'll put it in the chat. <laughs> it's blog.chartmetric.com is the blog. And the, the podcast is called um, How Music Charts. Um, and it's on all the, all the all your favorite streaming platforms out there available. Did you ask that question, Jason? No, no, I did not. <laughs> no, it says no, anonymous attendee. <laughs> Love it. Um, okay. I think we have time for this last question here. If you're starting out looking at your own band's data or an artist um, you manage's data, what's the first piece of data you should look at and interpret? Or maybe like one or two early stat pieces of data that you should be checking out? I, I missed the first part of that question. If you're starting out looking at your own band's data or an artist you manage, what's the first piece of data you should look at and interpret? I would want to get a benchmark of what normal looks like for that song and that artist, and then find other similar artists a step or two above and see what they're doing. And just start to look, starting to get familiar with those trends. Hey, we get about, and this is a freaky part when you're looking over time is, my God, almost the same number of people every week are once you get to a certain level, checking me out or listening to me, even though it's different people, how can we make a new normal and raise that bar and trying everything you can possibly think of to go from 100 people a day, 10 people a day, 1,000 people a day to add a zero. Awesome. Jason, were you gonna add something or, or no? No, nope. no, no. Fantastic. Well, guys, we're out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us. Holy cow, this was fun. What's the best way to, for people, if they want to learn more about what you guys are doing, follow your companies. Um, there are some obvious ways, Next Big Sound, chartmetric.com, um, Tempo Music. The, the, you, you, please go check out the website. It's a little, it's a little uh, uh, there's not much on it, but please go check it out. Any other uh, places to check out or resources or ways to get in touch for people? I'm just Alex at Pandora. If you have any more questions you didn't get to ask in this forum and Mr. Alex White on Twitter. I mean, my name is spelled very specifically, so you can find me online, easy Google, you can find me on most social media. I'm available. If you hit me up on LinkedIn, just tell me you saw this. I don't worry about how I met you. So. Uh, and then same, it's just we're at Chartmetric on all, all the social platforms. And uh, you can send this email at insights at chartmetric.com because uh, my colleague Rucker, who's just as much of a hand into the blog and podcast as I am, um, that hits him too as well. So feel free to hit us up at any time. Awesome. And don't forget to listen to the podcast, people. <laughs> can, per can personally say it's a great show. Check it out. Chartmetric Thanks, podcast. Thanks, <laughs> Guys, thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for hosting, Zach. Absolutely. Yeah. Hope to see thank you all you. in person. Looking forward to seeing y'all soon. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in. And thanks again to Jason, Alex, and Brittany for taking the time to talk with us. Holy cow, that was a fun, fun thing to do. And glad we could make it happen. And, and thanks again to everyone who tuned in live and who's listening right now. Really appreciate it. 
The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Hammond, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.